campus. My name is Clark Jeanette, and I help lead our Young Adults College Ministry, New Perspective. And so, yeah, if you are 18 to 28, come on out to our summer gathering. It's a really good time. Free food and games, so hopefully that's enough incentive to come. And, uh, again, if you or somebody knows 18 to 28, I'd uh, love to meet with you and connect with you out in our cafe um, after the message here today. So we've been going through a series called 90. It's a 90-day trek through the Bible. And so if you or somebody brought with you uh, today is new, uh, typically what we do here on the weekend services here at Grace Medina East is we'll choose a topic, talk about it for a few weeks until we run out of stuff to say about it, and then we'll move on to something different. And so for the past couple days, we thought that it would be incredibly important to talk about the Bible what is the Bible? What's it all about? We're always referencing this thing. We're always counseling people with this. We're talking about how awesome it is. And so that begs a good question, like, what, what is the Bible? And why do we put such a, such a high, uh, why do we have such a high view of Scripture, of God's Word? And so if you haven't been with us in the past couple weeks, let me just kind of give you a, a quick recap of where we've been. In week number one, we talked about what is the Bible? Why read the Bible? And Tony basically told us how we got it. And you can go online and catch up at medinaeast.graceohio.org. But we basically talked about like, how God has preserved this text through many, 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 many years. And we also asked, why read the Bible? Why read the Bible? And we said that it, it transforms people's lives. There's just something about, uh, there's something about this that transforms us when we read it. And so that was week one. And week number two, last week, we talked about what the Bible is about. And we kind of ended our conversation by saying that the Bible is God's rescue plan. And Tony unpacked this idea of, in the beginning, God created everything, and there was peace. And then in Genesis chapter 3, a rebellion occurred. Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the forbidden uh, tree of good and knowledge of good and evil. And then last, there was a promise that was made. And we showed a clip from the movie Taken. And basically, it was the phone call. And so we kind of compared that phone call to what God did with Satan, and he made that promise that he was going to redeem. And uh, basically, that's, the Bible is God's rescue plan. And so that's, that's kind of how we ended last week's conversation. And we concluded by saying this, that in the ensuing weeks to come, throughout this series 90, what we want to do is we want to unpack three subtitles. Let me kind of give those to you again. We want to talk about what we are saved from, what we are saved by, and what we are saved to. So today I want to talk about what we're saved from. And before we get into that, I uh, also just want to say we've been having these reading plans for this series as well. And so um, I just want to encourage you that if you've been in a reading plan, we have a New Testament one, we have an Old Testament and New Testament, and then we have one for kids too. So we're really just trying to encourage everybody to read the Bible. And by the way, you don't have to believe in the Bible to read the Bible. And so uh, if, if you kind of got off, if you fell off the reading plan wagon, I just want to encourage you to get back on and keep it up. I know for myself, I'm like a day behind right now, so a little confession on my end. Uh, but it's, it's been a great time getting into the Bible. And so, uh, again, if you're here for the first time or somebody you brought here with you, uh, you're here for the first time, uh, we would love to ask myself, anybody on our staff, and we would love to point you in the right direction and how to get involved uh, in a reading plan. So that's uh, just kind of a quick recap of, of where we've been and where we're going. And so today we want to talk about what we're saved from. And so if you got your Bibles, go to the book of Exodus, which can be found on page uh, 48. Exodus chapter 14, found on page 48. 
And if you're a digital person like myself, if you have like an iPhone or iPad or you're a tablet user, you can go to the App Store and download for free the app called YouVersion. That's Y-O-U version. And you can get to Exodus chapter 14 that way as well. So however you get there, that's where we're going to basically be camping out for our time together here today. Uh, but before we dive in, let me just kind of share a little bit about myself, because I'm not typically up here teaching every weekend, and so I feel obligated to kind of tell you a little bit about who I am. As I mentioned, I'm, my name's Clark. I help lead our Young Adults College Ministry. Uh, I've been an intern here at Medina East since fall of 2013, and so uh, I've been here ever since. I love it. It's, I love hanging out with young adults, probably because I am one, and uh, it's just a, an honor and a privilege to be here uh, with you guys and get to know you. Uh, about four years ago, a little interesting fact about myself, I actually had open heart surgery done. And so you might be thinking, you're kind of young to have open heart surgery. And to that, I would say, yes, I am. Um, <laughs> but it was a rare condition on my dad's side of the family. I was diagnosed. You see, my, my dad's side, they all have this rare condition called Lewis Dietz syndrome. And uh, not too many people get it. And so basically, uh, I had a blood test done because my, my aunts, or not my aunts, but my uncles and my dad was diagnosed with this. And basically what it is, is it's a, uh, your, your aortic valve, this is, this is really deep, like scientific language here, but your aortic valve basically dilates and then um, it has the potential to dissect and then it can bleed into your chest cavity and that creates a heart attack. And so when they told me, they're like, Clark, you have Lewis Dietz. I'm like, is there a cure for this? You know, like, what do I do with Lewis Dietz? And so they told me, like, well, they, they explained the whole thing. Like, okay, so it's going to dissect. It's going to bleed in your chest cavity. You could have a heart attack. And they said, this could happen in your 30s or 40s if you don't get this taken care of. And so I did what any human being would do. I was like, well, let's, let's get the ball rolling on this. Let's, uh, let's, let's chop, chop. Let's get the surgery done, right? And uh, so... I made the arrangements, and leading up to the date of my open heart surgery, um, I met up with my cardiologist and my cardiothoracic surgeon, also very big words for me, um, and I went to the Cleveland Clinic, which is really like the best place to go. It's one of the perks of living in the great state of Ohio, and so I went there and uh, had a lot, of, a lot of appointments, and one, uh, the day of my surgery, I want to share with you guys um, this, this conversation that I had uh, between myself and my cardiothoracic surgeon. And uh, I was, I'll never forget, I was sitting on this hospital bed at the Cleveland Clinic, and I was surrounded by all my friends and all my family, people that I love, people that love me, feeling just full of fear, apprehension, anxiety, doubt, distress, just like scared to death, terrified. And my cardiothoracic surgeon, he's like, all right, Mr. Jeanette, I want to explain to you the procedure and what we're going to be doing to you today. He's got his clipboard. And he's like, what we're going to be doing is we're going to uh, put you to sleep under anesthesia. And then after that, we are going to make the incision on your chest. And we're going to open your chest. And we're going to deflate your lungs. And then after we do that, I'm like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) He's like, and after we do that, we're going to cut a strip out of your aortic valve. And then we are going to tighten that back up. And then we're going to close your chest back up. And then we're going to roll you into ICU. And then we're going to wake you back up. Do you have any questions? And I'm just like, yeah. (laughs) I just looked at him and I'm like, I don't mean any, I'm not trying to be like offend you. But I'm like, how do I know that you know what you're doing? You're operating on me. How can I trust you? How can I find a rest 
in this situation. I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, because my team's the best. (laughs) And I believed him. (laughs) It was in that moment that I felt a sense of peace, that I felt a sense of confidence, that I felt rest in that man's words. I can't explain it. It was unexplainable and undeniable. Later that day, I went onto the Cleveland Clinic's website and I found out to my advantage that within the span of one year, the Cleveland Clinic performs over 4,000 open heart surgeries. And I found out for my cardiothoracic surgeon alone, I'm like, I'm going to look you up, man. Make sure your team is the best. I looked him up and I found out that this guy, he was hired on staff in 2005, he has performed over 1,300 aortic repairs. And I was like, his team is the best. And I was like, I want to have surgery from you, even if I don't need it now. I just want to say I had heart surgery from you. And so I just had, I had a sense of confidence and rest and peace in that. So why share that with you? Because I want you to know that God wants you to have that same sense of peace, that same sense of rest, and that same confidence in the midst of any situation, in the midst of all of your fear, anxiety, apprehension, doubt, and distress. God wants that for you, and he wants that for me. And some of you are going through some crazy situations right now. And I want to share a passage with you today. God wants to share a passage with you today that you can find rest in. And so we're we're going to be going to Exodus 14. And so as we're going there, let me just kind of tee up this conversation a little bit and talk about the book of Exodus. It's always good to start with context. How did we get to Exodus 14? So what happened before that? It's important to know that the book of Exodus, it starts out um, with the word and, which is a conjunction. It says, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. And it's using Genesis language. It's saying like the story is continuing. And we see that by the time the curtain drops uh, in Genesis, we we still have a promise that God made to Abraham. He's like, I'm going to make you uh, a blessing to all the nations. All the nations will be blessed through you. And so that's happening to the, through the book of Exodus as well. Uh, 400 years have passed from the time the curtain drops in, in Genesis to the time we pick back up in the book of Exodus. And so we see that they have grown in population. They're now not like a moderately sized family. Now they are the nation of Israel. They're a people group now. And so that's, that's pretty cool. They, they've grown in number. And so now they're a nation But there's a huge problem within all of this. Huge problem. And this problem is really more of a person. And this problem's name is Pharaoh. This person's name is Pharaoh. And if you know anything about Pharaoh, this guy was a genocidal king. I mean, I would equate this guy right up there with Hitler and Joseph Stalin. This guy was evil. This is a bad, bad dude. And so the Bible tells us that he disregards the Israelites' humanity. He doesn't treat them as human beings. He brutally enslaves these people. Not only does he brutally enslave them, he even orders that the sons of Israel are thrown into the Nile River. And this guy is like the worst dude so far in the Bible. He's evil. And so what we see happening is God appoints Moses, which, by the way, is not Christian Baal, or I think Charleston Heston played Moses in like this 50s movie. 
But anyway, Moses is God's human agent of deliverance. And he's, he's like, Moses, I'm going ra- to raise you up, and you, you are going to represent, you're going to be the one to deliver the Israelites. And so you have Moses in this corner, and then we have Pharaoh in this corner who represents a whole pantheon of Egyptian gods, specifically the sun god, Ra. And so these two are in a cosmic struggle with one another. And what God does is he sends ten different plagues. Taking, and, and, and really, there's, this is God's divine justice. This is a response. He wants to differentiate. He wants Israel to know, although they have may forgotten God, God has not forgotten them, not by a long shot. And so we see that the climax happens at the 10th plague. And what God does is he takes out the firstborn son of, of the Egyptians. And then we get to Exodus 12 which is the Passover, and just keep that word in the back of your head, Passover. We're going to come back and talk about that later, and that's really important. But what you need to know about Passover is that, that they had a, the Israelites had detailed instructions to take a sacrificial lamb and to take the blood and to put it on their homes so that the 10th plague would pass over them. And so after Exodus 12, uh, we really get to our passage of study. And what we're going to see today is that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's going to lure destruction. He's going to lure evil into its own destruction. And so break in with me, if you would, Exodus chapter 14, verses 1. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Harath between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and we have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So what we see happening so far in the text is Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go. The whole time Moses is like, let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And he's just like, is there an echo in here? And so he finally lets his people go. And what happens is he has a change in heart. He's like, what did we, what did we do? We, we lost our services. Who's going to be my slaves now? And so he gets his chariots. He gets 600 chariots, all the chariots of Egypt. And he's in hot pursuit of these guys now. So watch what happens next. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Now, I want you guys to notice that at this point, the Israelites, they're marching out boldly. Now, watch what happens next. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Harath, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. There were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, 
Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So I want you guys to imagine this picture with me, okay? I want to throw a picture up on the PowerPoint, actually. This is the Red Sea. Child 989, please go to the Power Kids area. This is the Red Sea. And and I want you to uh, imagine with me the Israelites fleeing from the Egyptians. And so they're surrounded. They've got nowhere to go. And really, it's, it's more mountainy terrain than it is really like a wilderness or a desert. And so they've got the Red Sea behind them. They've got the Egyptian army in front of them. Imagine men, women, children, beasts, all at the floor. Red Sea behind. Egyptians in front. Feeling full of fear, full of apprehension, full of anxiety, full of distress. Sound familiar? And what we notice is that they are given words of rest. I want you to, I want you to imagine this picture with me, though. They're surrounded. They've got nowhere to go. Watch what happens in verse 13. And I encourage you, if you're a person who writes in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle verses 13 and 14. Because these are powerful verses. These verses are not only for, for myself and you, they're for everybody. These are not only just for the Israelites, they're, they're for everybody. So watch, watch, what Moses, watch his reaction in verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So what we see there is that he gives them words of rest, words of confidence, words of deliverance. They can trust in Moses. They're looking at him and they're like, how do we know? that you know what you're doing here. And he tells them, the Lord is going to fight for you guys. These Egyptians that you see, you're never going to see these guys again. One commentator mentioned when I was studying this that the Israelites shouldn't have been scared to see the, the Egyptians. They should have been terrified if they did not see the Egyptians because that would indicate that God's prediction was wrong. And so we see that they have the sense of trust and confidence and rest in the words of Moses. And if you're not familiar with the way that the story ends, just in case you're not familiar, Moses separates the Red Sea with a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right. He leads them across the Red Sea. And when they get to the other side, he closes the water onto the Egyptians. God annihilates Pharaoh and his army. And we see in Exodus chapter 15, our first worship song. I encourage you on your own reading time, read Exodus 15. It talks about how God is a warrior and how he fights for his people. And this should give us rest and confidence in in his promise. 
here's the one thing I want you to remember for this conversation. If there's one thing that you, that you take away from all of this, here's the one thing. That when we rest in his promise, he provides us with protection. So when we rest in God's promise, he provides us with protection. The same way that I found confidence and rest in the words of my cardiothoracic surgeon when I was sitting there scared to death, full of fear, full of apprehension, full of anxiety, full of distress and doubt is the same. And, and, and then he told me that he's like, my team's the best. I mean, that's what God is saying. That's what Moses is telling the Israelites. He's like, God's team's the best. He's like, you're on the winning team. He's going to fight for you guys. You should find, you should be encouraged by that. You should find confidence in that. You should find rest in that. Some of you are going through some crazy stuff right now, and you need to hear that. God wants you to hear this passage today. He wants you to find rest in that. And so when I read this story, though, you might be thinking, well, that's, that's a cool story, bro. So, so what? So what does that have to do with anything? How does that affect the guy at the gas pump at Sheets right now, right? Well, I like to call this story here, I like to call this a microcosm within a macrocosm. In other words, I think it's a smaller story and a much bigger story. That bigger story being God's plan of redemption, God's rescue plan. We talked about this last week. The Exodus story is a smaller story and a much bigger story. And the, and the good news is that we're part of that story. And, and God gave the Israelites a political liberation as well as a spiritual liberation. And he wants to give all of us, he wants us to be a part of this spiritual liberation. He wants to liberate us spiritually. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I created this little chart and I want to kind of compare the Exodus story to our story. And so you see in the Exodus story that we just read, we noticed that the Israelites were enslaved to an evil tyrant. That evil tyrant was Pharaoh. And he put the, Egypt, they put the Israelites under very heavy oppression. And he disregarded their humanity. We just read about that. We notice that in our story, we too, we are enslaved to an evil tyrant. And the Bible says that that person is Satan. He is the devil. He is the adversary. He was the serpent in Genesis 3 that we talked about last week. The Bible says that he is the father of lies and he is the murderer since the beginning. So we too are enslaved to an evil tyrant. I want you to notice too that in the Exodus story, God raised up a deliverer. His name was Moses. And Moses, again, not Charleston Heston or not Christian Bale, but Moses, he was God's agent of deliverance and he led the Israelites out of their captivity. In our story, I want you guys to see this. In our story, God raised up a deliverer, Jesus, the Messiah. He was the one to come. All of this is a gigantic arrow pointing to Jesus, part of the, the bigger meta-narrative story. We notice, too, that in the story of Exodus, that God made a promise of deliverance. God made a promise of deliverance that he would fight for Israel, that, he, that, that they can rest in him, that they can hold their peace in him. We see, too, that for us, that God made a promise of deliverance. 
In Genesis 3, we mentioned this last week. It says that he will strike his heel, but then he will crush his head. He's talking about Jesus. He's going to come and defeat Satan, the enemy. So guys, catch this. Stick with me. This is where it gets, you get into goosebump territory here for me. The first time I discovered this, I just had chills. And you might be thinking, yeah, right, dude. Well, check this out. In Exodus 12, we read about this Passover lamb. And we mentioned this early, earlier. Remember, I said, keep that in the back of your mind. So the Passover was basically detailed instructions for the Israelites to take a lamb and to sacrifice it and to take the blood and to sprinkle it over the door frames of their homes so that the 10th plague, the death plague, would pass over them, sparing their firstborn son of their family. So watch what happens in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see this. We see that when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him. And you know what he says? He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You guys, Jesus is the Passover Lamb. He is our sacrificial Lamb. And if that's not revealing enough, Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, all tells us that Jesus went to the cross during the time of Passover. Staggering. I want you to notice lastly that the Israelites were freed from their bondage. We just read about this. They crossed the Red Sea. They entered into God's greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament. And I want you to notice this. This, my, my prayer is that this will give you rest. This would give you peace. That this would give you confidence in the midst of all your fear, all your anxiety, all your apprehension, all your doubt, all your distress. Notice what the Apostle Paul records in Colossians chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Jesus has delivered us from spiritual slavery. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, I don't feel enslaved to an evil tyrant. That's a cool story. That's a cool chart. But I don't feel enslaved. What are you talking about, man? I don't feel enslaved. Well, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about here. You see, for some of us, we're a slave to our insecurities. We're a slave to our insecurities. We live under the tyranny of feeling... Like we're worthless. Some of us were a slave to our insecurities. Well, I want you to know, the Bible says there's an author behind that. And his name is Satan. And he's the accuser. The Bible says there's an author behind that. Some of us were a slave to insecurities. For some of us, the way this fleshes itself out today, some of us are living under the tyranny of financial struggles. Some of you right now are living under the tyranny of financial debt. I just want you to know that there is an, the Bible says that there is an author behind that too. Some of us were living under the tyranny of addictions. Some of us are a slave to addictions and that the enemy has a python grip on you and it doesn't matter what you do, you feel like you just keep falling perpetually into a pit of death. And I can tell you, I'll be the first one to admit that I know what that's like. I came out of, I came out of the party scene 
high school, my early 20s, that's a dark place to be. That is a really dark place to be. And I want you to know that there's an author behind that. And his name is Satan. And he wants to kill and destroy and maim everything good. For some of us, we're a slave to lies. Some of us were a slave to lies. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he's the father of lies. He says the enemy, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. For some of us, we, we are way too familiar with this. I know for myself, as I'm preparing in my house, I'm looking over my notes, I'm just like, God, I am so inadequate for this role. I mean, I hear these voices in my head, not an audible voice, but my thoughts. And I think, man, you're an idiot. Like, what makes you think, what gives you the credibility to stand before the Medina East campus and tell them about, about God? What gives you the credibility to do that? You're just this pathetic fool from a small town. I mean, you're an idiot. What makes, what makes you think that you can stand before these people and talk about God and open this and, and tell them what this means? You pathetic fool. And, you know, I think, you know, that brings me down, you know. I'm not going to lie. I just I get super bummed out and depressed. But you know what happens is I realize that there is an author behind that, and his name is Satan, and he is the adversary. He's the father of lies, and he wants you to think that you are pathetic, that you are worthless. And the good news is, is it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. These lies are rooted in our belief, what we think about ourselves, and they affect our emotions. And sometimes we can be angry. You guys know what this is like. Sometimes we can feel depressed and sad. And that affects our behavior. And our behavior can be very destructive. And it can be very dark. For some of us, we've been doing the Bible reading plan. And that's awesome. I hope you keep doing it. Tell me that you haven't been feeling stronger from reading the scriptures. I know I feel it. I'm in Bible college. I get into the Bible to do homework. I know that that's a very rare thing for people. Um, And so I've been going through the New Testament. And I have no injected presuppositions, no hidden agendas. When I get in the Gospel of Matthew last week through the New Testament, it's been great. It's been awesome. And then there's been times where I haven't had time to do it. And I'm like, "Eh, I'm just not going to do it today, you know. And I get into it, and never once have I said, man, I really regret doing that. So I just encourage you to go to God's word, go to his truth, because when we live under the tyranny of lies, we're able to take our lies and insert the truth. For some of you, maybe you've never been told this before, but you are created in the image of God, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that you are so precious to God and that he loves you. Maybe for some of you, you've never heard that before. And you've believed a lie your entire life. That you're nothing but trash. That you're pathetic. You guys know what this is like. But it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be this way. Because we're able to name the lie and insert the truth. The Apostle Paul talks about the Bible and reference. He references it as he calls it the sword of the spirit in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on the full armor of God. And he says, take the sword of the spirit, the only offensive, that we're, offensive weapon that we're given to fight this spiritual battle. And when we read the word, when we open the Bible, God's mouth opens. 
and it heals us. And we can stop that stinking thinking, you know, that, we, that, that belief, that lie that we're nothing but trash. And then that will affect our emotions. And our emotions will affect our behavior. And our behavior will be pro 